every hype artist turns himself almost into a caricature version of themselves. They turn themselves into like a heroic version. They take their their nuanced trait and sort of smooth the rough edges out, right? So Richard Branson is this sort of swashbuckling, um, Atlantic crossing hero. So you know, what I realized was the ones who do this best don't usually play up their strengths. They do sometimes, but what they do more is they find their weakness and they flip it into a strength. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest is the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in making idea-based companies famous in their fields. Some of his clients have included eBay, Magneto, the Medici Group, University of Pennsylvania, Gordon College, University of California, Irvine, United Methodist Publishing House, Rico, LinkedIn, and Citrix. His writing has appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Psychology Today, and Huffington Post, and he is a speaker for international audiences spanning from the northeastern United States to the southeastern coast of China. His book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers, published by McGraw-Hill, appears where books are sold. Please welcome to the show, Michael F. Shine. Well, Michael... A real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so pleased to be here, Jared. You left your cushy corporate job to pursue a career in copywriting. And some would say what's really the perfect time to do that, just before the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. With an infant. With with an infant as well. Yeah. Really, the stars were lining up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you remember that being a hard decision for you at the time? Oh, no, it was easy. It was really easy. No, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. I mean, top three, <laughs> hard, actually, one of the top three hardest decisions I've ever made. In fact, um, I was at that job for eight years. And I would say that the first three were really worthwhile because I learned a lot and I became a grown up and I learned about business. I would mm -hmm. say the last five were 100% out of fear. You know, I, I was there out of fear and it was just um, the idea of not getting a paycheck and it, having a, a big failure again, because I perceived my earlier artistic endeavors as a failure rather than a learning experience, which I've since sort mm -hmm. of, um, you know, tried to beat that point of view out of my head. But that was how I was back then. So, yeah, it was terrifying beyond belief. What forced you or what made you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I guess um I guess it was a couple of things. I mean, I remember one of the things my um then girlfriend and I were having dinner after work and I had just done this. So the company was was called a BPO company, which is a fancy way of saying business process outsourcing. It's a fancy way of saying we ran call centers, you know. And I had just done this 
crazy stint of like three months of seven days a week work, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., getting screamed at by clients because we had, um, I was in charge of scripting, uh, you know, call the, the scripts that the agents used. And the, the, the systems weren't working properly. The agents were doing a really bad job with this new program. And I was the one who had to like do all of the quality assurance and, and just this incredible damage control thing. So at the end of the three months of this torturous, mind numbing thing, I got a bonus and a raise and they were both substantial. So I was telling my then girlfriend about this and she said, oh my God, that's great. And I said, you know, I am a loser. She said, what do you mean you're a loser? I'm like, I'm a loser. <laughs> like, this is now I'm just closer to doing this, being entrenched in this thing that I never, it, that, that's like the opposite of what I ever thought I would want to do with my life. And then I guess the thing that really put the nail in the coffin was um, when I found out that I, I, I was going to have a daughter um, and I just started to like, and, and again, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind. I never wanted to be in business. I wanted to write uh, novels or, or play in bands or whatever. And um, I just remember like my, my position at the time was vice president of solution development. And I just had this like vision in my head of going into career day with my daughter and being like, I'm a vice president of solution development. And I always used to sort of mumble when people asked me what I would, what I did for a living. I'd be like, oh, call center, you know, and I just was like, I, I, I can't, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it sounds like a Dilbert cartoon, that job title. It, the whole thing was a Dilbert. My life was a Dilbert cartoon. You you mentioned something really interesting to me, where you mentioned that you used to see challenges as just that, as as a challenge, as a negative. But you also mentioned that now your mentality has really changed, where now you see those challenges as something to overcome and and be positive about. How have you overcome that? I think by getting kicked in the ass a lot of times, honestly. Like, I mean, I, I think compared to a lot of people in, in, on the planet earth, I grew up in pretty cushy circumstances, you know? And, um, I guess, yeah, when I, when I, I had some failures in my life, just things I wanted to do early on artistic endeavors, which felt like the end of the world at the time, but they weren't. And then in that job, my first year out of that job, I just did everything wrong and lost almost all my money. And I just, I guess like, every time something like that happens and I still do this, I feel bad and I beat myself up. That'll probably never go away. That's not really healthy, but I think I'm wired that way, although I've gotten better. But at the end of it, I always come up with a solution and learn something that makes it, it better. So I've just tried to reframe it as like the human condition is one of trial and error and we're just very adaptable. So how are you supposed to know the right way to do something unless, unless you, you know, like every invention is a function of solving an obstacle, right? Like I know, I, I mean, that might sound cliche, but like whoever invented the wheel was like tired of like lugging logs or folders or whatever they were logging, you know, lugging on a sled or, or just on their back, right? So um, that being said, emotionally, I still, I'm not like one of these self-help gurus who just easily, <laughs> you know, deals with this stuff. I mean, I, I go through all kinds of emotional turmoil every time I take a wrong turn. You felt like you were producing really good work. And I know that you mentioned you were reading a bunch of marketing books and a bunch of sales books, but you just felt like you couldn't get ahead. You couldn't get your message out there. You couldn't book as many clients as you felt like you kind of thought you should. What prompted you to take a look back 
on your past and learn from the marketing tactics that you'd used uh, to promote your band a decade earlier? Desperation, you know, honestly. So like, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I just had this ridiculous idea. I, I, I'm sort of convinced that like all the progress in the world comes from delusion. Like, you know, you, you, you think something is going to be relatively easy to do and then you try it. And it takes like five times as long as you think. So you have to get creative, you know. Because I, I, this was actually my idea. I was going to leave my job. And because I was a good writer, I would write a white paper a week, which, which people at the time were paying 3000 to $5,000 for. So you can do the math. I mean, that's, you know, that's a good living. Yeah, right. So um, that was my plan. And what I didn't realize was that, A, you had to actually sell yourself. And B, I wasn't that good at selling myself. So um, I wasn't, you know, I, would, I had some work. But it was mainly through referrals. And I I just, you know, I think what happened was, I, so I don't know how much um, your listeners know about me, but I was this totally like artsy guy who played in a band. And our band, even though we didn't become rock stars, did relatively well, all things considered. I mean, we used to sell this club, Arlene's Grocery, out all the time, which is a pretty, you know, Fame, the Strokes got their start there. It's a pretty famous club. We had a residency there. We would, um, we got a lot of press, and we never thought of it as marketing. We thought of it as hyping ourselves up. So we would do all these crazy things. You know, we would just do all these controversial kind of things. So um, to get attention. So um, I guess being in that job for close to a decade, the mischief maker and the punk rocker was beaten out of me. You know, I, I just, you know, we're very adaptable as human beings. So when I was around corporate type people, many of whom I'm still friends with. They're, they're, they're great people, but the game is not played that way. So I just became a, a, a businessy kind of guy, a straight laced kind of dude. You know what I mean? And so when I went out on my own and I got, I had a business type business idea being a business writer, I just figured I should do businessy things to get attention. So if there were marketing and sales books that I read or courses or whatever, they were straight laced marketing and sales courses. I mean, I read about search engine optimization. I learned about A-B testing. I read about, I don't know, challenger sales, just, just all this typical stuff. And I got some value out of it, but it was really mediocre. I mean, I, I just sort of was scrapping. I mean, I was, I was, I wasn't really making a living. I, I was spending more than I was making. I was burning through my savings. And so I was desperate. I didn't want to get a job again. I mean, that was a really painful. Um, I didn't like being in that job. And I thought every job would be like that. So I I actually had a, I, I was, I had moved back to New York and I was in downtown Manhattan where I used to play. And I walked uh, on Ludlow Street, I think it was Ludlow Street, wherever Arlene's Grocery is. And I just remembered how we used to be. And I had this revelation. I was kind of like, why did I used to be so good at getting attention? And I'm so bad at it now. I literally couldn't get people <laughs> to you know, pay attention to me. So I was like, I have nothing to lose. I mean, why don't I just go back to being the way I was, but in a business setting? So I started picking fights with prominent gurus and publications. I started being really irreverent and funny in in my writing and in my interviews and um it worked really well so that was just kind of a paradigm shift for me once you started down that path of of thinking about marketing as hype did you think that that was going to turn into your life's work or was that just happenstance no i i didn't know it would turn into my life's work i i, I was trying to survive 
Um, I, I, you know, all I, to me, the only measure was whether I was making more sales. So the other way of doing things wasn't working and hype, which I define as just any activity that drives a huge amount of attention and emotion to get people to do what you want them to do at scale. I didn't even know that was a thing. I, I mean, right now I have this very coherent philosophy and that's what I wrote the book about that human psychology, especially mass psychology is really generalizable. So whether you're starting a horrible religious cult or starting Virgin records and Virgin airlines, the mass psychology principles behind them are the same, even though the content is different at the time though, I didn't know from any of that. I, I thought that, you know, respectable people knew how to market things and they used PowerPoint decks and they used uh, whatever salespeople did. They slapped backs and shook hands and went to cocktail hmm. events. So went I did golfing. all of that. Went golfing, seriously. I did think about yeah. that. Which you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I hate golf, but I actually thought about <laughs> taking it up. <laughs> Weirdly enough. That is desperation. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. I mean, I was like, oh, it sucks that I don't uh, I don't like golf. I mean, a lot of work gets done on the golf course, you know. Um, so no, I, I think it was just something that I stumbled on, but it did coincide with my interests. I've always been interested in history and arts mischief makers, always, for as long as I can remember. So so I think sometimes a great idea comes from two disparate fields intersecting. And it was like all my interest in this kind of transgressive art and these transgressive figures with the business world and marketing. And it kind of met in the middle. And I had this click moment. At what point did you come to realize that there was broader implications for what you were researching around hype, that it wasn't necessarily just about how could you sell your services, but that it was broader that, you know, folks like me could implement those same hype strategies? I'm a big reader and researcher. I've noticed that in, in <laughs> I've noticed that reading has suddenly become cool. I, I mean, everyone is bragging about how much they read all the Good time. Good point, man. I used to yeah. be a loser. Yeah, me too. Like I, I remember. Well, being, I yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I remember going in into a hotel on vacation with my parents, and I had nothing to read at the pool. And I remember saying to like the front desk, "Hey, um." Do you have a bookstore or, or a newsstand anywhere around here? I have to do a, a project for school because that's how embarrassed I was to say that I wanted to read a book just for the fun of it, you know, but, but um, I noticed it's suddenly become cool to read. And I don't know where that comes from, but I've always been that guy, you know, I mean, I wanted to be a writer and most writers are readers. So when I get into something, I go out and I read everything about it. Um, and so I started reading, I, I said I had read all the marketing and sales books, but now I started reading all of these I don't know, I would read biographies of really, um, gosh, I mean, cult leaders and, and, and um, kind of circus type promoters and Andy Warhol and this sort of thing. I would read really obscure crowd psychology books. And so I started to develop this worldview, even before I knew it was a worldview, that maybe there were deeper principles to getting people into a transcendent state, getting people to follow you in mass that wasn't about using HubSpot or, or SEO, right? However, I actually can pinpoint when I had the idea for the book, the hype handbook, because I was on a business trip. And, and again, the copywriting business started to do so well using these approaches that it became a marketing agency. 
So I was on a business trip and I was just hanging out in the room. And one of the earliest Donald Trump debates was on, one of the earliest ones, like when he was considered a joke candidate, when there were like 17 people. And I was reading this book called The Crowd by Gustave Le Bon, which is this really old book. It's from, I think, like 1895. And Gustave Le Bon had seen the Paris Commune burn Paris to the ground for no reason. In the beginning, they had a reason, but after a while, it was clear they were going to lose. Their ideas were all over the map, and they just started destroying the city. And, and he never got why they would do that. So he dedicated his life to figuring out like crowd dynamics, and he became the first crowd psychologist. So... I was reading this book and watching this debate and, and like the book would say things like, you know, crowds respond well to empty visual future focused language, simple slogans that you can put your own meaning onto. Crowds respond to external signifiers of prestige. When there's no prestige, money is an excellent substitute. And I was like reading this and watching the debate, just flipping around. And I was like, wow, this guy's going to win. You know, and, and I'll just come out and say it, even if I lose a few potential readers and customers, I dislike Donald Trump immensely. And I thought, he was, <laughs> you know, and I, I thought he was a danger. And I couldn't understand why people were falling for this game show host, basically. Right. Um, so it just occurred to me because I consider him a bad person. It occurred to me that bad people come to this stuff on balance more easily than good people. So even though there's nothing immoral about what I call hype, because sociopaths and narcissists and people like that can really see the world as a chessboard, they don't have that empathy. They are really good at figuring out how to get large numbers of people to do what they want them to do. They, they, they're able to detach and understand that. So it, it became really clear to me that it wasn't enough for me to just use these concepts to, I don't know, help my own career in the form of getting clients. It just occurred to me that I had, in the course of doing the agency work, I'd run into all these great businesses who were just constantly scrapping to get their ideas heard. And it was like pulling teeth. And then these people selling garbage were so good at getting their ideas heard. And it just became really important to me to convince everybody that there's value in arming yourself to deal with human beings in the way the world really works, not the way we wish it worked, as long as we do it ethically, and then to teach good people how to do it. So that kind of became a driving fire in me, rather than just using it to get clients after that moment. I think it's a really admirable mission. And, and I know it's really struck a chord with me and with folks that I've discussed these topics with. And so I personally have had a, a really kind of mind shift just based on the, the quality of the book that you've written. Thank you. And I know that you've, yeah, you're welcome. And I, I know that you said that the book is for people that create great work, but they also feel like their work should speak for themselves. And maybe they hesitate to promote that work because they feel like, oh, the work should speak for itself. And I, I know I personally felt that exact same way. Yeah. Even Like even with this podcast, for example, that I don't feel like I should have to promote it because I feel like I do good work and promoting it in some ways detracts from the work. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody like me? And I think there's many folks out there like me that are maybe a bit hesitant to use tactics like hype um, and, and tactics that you present in the book. Yeah. I mean, I think there are people who feel the way you do that the work should speak for itself. And then there's another subset of people who know they have to market and sell 
but they just sort of do it in a cookie cutter way. Like they, they create blog posts or they, the funniest thing is when I see people will like invest all this money on HubSpot, which is a technology. And then three months later, they don't understand why they don't have any more leads or eyeballs. And it's kind of like, well, you bought a piece of technology, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) I see that a lot. Um, I think, you know, we think of it as manipulation. We think of it as fooling people, right? And we see all of these bad people doing it, you know, for, for, you know, again, I, I hate to make this political and I'm sure I'll lose fans, but Donald Trump, when you see someone like that lying and insulting people and saying things that are obvious, that obviously make no sense and changing the story mid sentence and talking in hyperbole, many of us who aren't attracted to that stuff say, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be like that. Like, why would I want to do that? You know? Yeah. And I think what you have to realize is that human brains are not evolved to see the world accurately. You know, we're bombarded with information and stimuli. And if we assessed each piece of information, we would be paralyzed and be eaten. So we use mental shortcuts on a daily second by second basis. So I would say if if there's someone who uses these tactics, who's really successful, pay attention to why do these tactics work so well? What what I always say to myself is if someone can hype something up to sell garbage, imagine what you can do to sell something great. So let me give you an example. Make America great again. So there's two ways to look at that. Just constantly, someone will give Trump a factual argument and he'll just say, make America great again. Not argue back, not give any facts and, and whatever. So you can say to yourself, what a jerk, you know, he's not even debating the facts. Or you can say, what about that works? It, like, why would that be persuasive? Because Hillary Clinton would say, go to HillaryClinton.gov and here are all the facts. Shouldn't that work? Shouldn't that be what we, we respond to? Well, he used a slogan that anyone can read any meaning into it that they want that's wrapped in things that people are comfortable with. These are all hype tactics. So, for example, make America great again if you're a bigot can mean make America go back to a time where white people ruled everything. But it can also mean make America um, proud because it does its own manufacturing and creates things. It can mean make America not be at its other's throat. Um, It's punchy. It's a command. It tells you what to do. It provides a rock to cling on to. And many, many great people have done. Oh, what it also does is it doesn't speak against America. Most people love their country. So something that liberals often do wrong is even when they're running for office, they come across as if they hate their own country. They just do. And I'm a Democrat, you know, but there's all of this. This is what America is doing wrong. The American colonialism and this and that. And that all might be true, but most people aren't ready to get to a place where they hate their own country. They want to believe that their country is good. So can you say to yourself, okay, what can I possibly do in a positive sense that plays on these same, you know, ideas? Is it possible? Well, of course it's possible. I mean, Martin Luther King had every reason to hate America, much more than most of the people that do now. But if you listen to his speeches, they're wrapped in the flag. It's all from sea to shining sea. It uses language from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. 
Um, Timothy Leary, for better or worse, when he wanted to sell the counterculture, he said, tune in, turn on, drop out, which is a very direct, future-focused, vague slogan, right? So what can you learn from these people? Can you dissect why it works? Is it just that they're pure evil and manipulative? Usually you'll find that it's not. Usually you'll find that it, there's something there. I want to take a few seconds to tell you about my experience reading Michael's book, The Hype Handbook. I have always struggled with marketing and sales and not wanting to come across as salesy or greasy. Michael's book gave me a completely new paradigm to work within and got me excited about the potential around marketing again. I really recommend this book to anyone that creates great work, feels like the work should speak for itself, and is looking for a way to grow their impact. What do you think those best quote unquote hype artists do to get their message across outside of what you've already mentioned? I mean, there are literally 12 things. I mean, I, I know that, you know, I mean, <laughs> where would one find those? Though? No. And yeah, that, this is what I'm saying. So I, I mean, it's no secret that I wrote a book called the hype hand book and it has a, um, a clickbaity subtitle, 12 indispensable success secrets from, you know, cult leaders, propagandists, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is I read, countless books about crowd psychology and what I call hype artists, these, these unorthodox promoters. I interviewed people, I did experiments. And whenever I would find a uh, tactic or strategy, I, I would write it down and I would organize it. And over time, you would see the same patterns repeat over and over and over again, right? So if, if, if there was just a certain type of person who was good at self-promotion, and their strategies were all over the map, there's no book there. There's no method there. That's just an inborn thing. But it turns out that's not the case. You see the same patterns over and over and over again with very different content, surface level content, which I think is really encouraging because it means you can learn it. How do you think that hype serves as a method for outsiders to break into an insider's world? Or do you think that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes it's the only way. Um, the reason I used the term hype instead of marketing is because I, I got the term from hip hop, uh, which I which I'm a fan of. And I, I used to, you know, I'm 43 years old. So when I was younger, uh, a lot of the hip hop groups had a character in them called the hype man. And, um, you know, Flava Flav is the most notable example from Public Enemy. And they're part of the group but they're also kind of part court jester, part marketer, part crowd, you know, get the crowd riled up guy. And, you know, hip hop, you know, Kanye West was just um, noted to be a billionaire and before him, Jay-Z was. And that's really extraordinary considering that hip hop was invented in the South Bronx, which still is the poorest neighborhood in the United States of America. So these were people who really didn't have a direct route to success. I mean, it's really easy when you, you know, went to the best schools and, and climbed the ladder to get an MBA and get a degree in marketing and, and, you know, just sort of do what you're supposed to do and put ad dollars into something and get some traction. But if you're on the outside looking in, oh, and it's also very easy for those people to pish posh people who are unorthodox in the way they get attention. But if you're on the outside looking in, sometimes the only thing you can do is get creative. You need to engage in benevolent mischief to give your, yourself an advantage where none existed. And I think today, a lot of us, a lot more of us 
are outsiders. I mean, this this is not new, what I'm about to say, but um, the day of getting a job and staying there for 25 years is over. But also we have this pandemic and it's, it's you know, luckily we're, it's hopefully winding down, knock on wood, but who the heck knows what's coming? I mean, we're in a time of a lot of uncertainty. So you have to really arm yourself to be creative in the way that you promote your own career. Um, and I think hype is a method of doing that, is the method of doing that in a lot of cases. I think what really resonated with me was that kind of side door mentality where it's so hard as somebody who wants to break into a an industry, it's so hard to do it just on quality. It's so hard to do it just on marketing or just on sales. And I so the concept really resonated with me because it presented this almost side door mentality to getting what you want. I'm interested to know how have you used that in your own life or have you? I mean, yeah, I've used it a lot. I mean, I, w- I want to give an example before I go into myself because it, it reminds me of Mark Echo, who made the Echo clothing line, which is hip hop influenced. And he, he um, talks about how and his stuff is great. I mean, he's a great artist. I mean, just visual artist. He's a really good clothing designer. He started out really young, just has raw talent. You know, he would do things like, you, you know, Macy's gave him one T-rack in their store, in their flagship store, which basically is just like one clothing rack uh, for his clothing. So he could say he was in Macy's, but if that thing didn't sell out in a couple of weeks, he was done. He lost his chance. So he got all of his street team members, gave them money and had them buy his own clothing because he knew it's like the idea. I remember seeing a thing Motley Crue used to sell out some club on a Wednesday night and they got signed because the record label doesn't care about the revenue from that club. That's nothing. But if you can sell out a club on Wednesday night by yourself, imagine what you can do if you have record company dollars. So the people who want to back you and help you and take you to the next level are looking for indicators that you're successful on your own. And the world is pretty unforgiving. I mean, if you miss your chance, you've missed your chance. You have to really pivot. So um, yeah, I think sometimes generating the perception of momentum, generating the perception of being bigger than you are, generating energy and transcendence around something that doesn't have any is really important. And and in regards to how I did it, um, that's totally how I, 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 um, you know, set myself apart. I mean, um, I called out Gary Vaynerchuk in an article when I was a nobody and when I was going broke and basically talked about how I knew the answer to what it really took to market yourself better than him. And I made a really compelling argument, so much so that he responded to me by video. But everyone assumed that I was a big shot because I was writing for Inc. Magazine, but I had just totally talked my way into that article. And then by Gary <laughs> responding to me like I was a big shot, made me you a were. big shot. Yeah, exactly. So it's really this self-perpetuating kind of thing that you can engage in. A lot of it comes down to confidence and 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 just speaking without qualifiers and writing without qualifiers and behaving without qualifiers. I think it's easy sometimes to throw stones and then not back that up with anything. But with you, what I notice is that you you pointed out the flaws of an idea, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk saying work so hard. And, you know, you presented an alternative reality to that. How did you transition from 
that one kind of article into something more meaningful and more in-depth? Well, I think there's a big difference between being a provocateur, which is something I, I think everybody should do and that I talk a lot about in the book, and it's a cornerstone of hype. I think there's a difference between that, being contrarian, and being a troll. I mean, I think going around and insulting people just to get attention, I think there is such thing as bad publicity. If I had gone out there and said, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is ugly and he's a loud mouth and he's a jerk, I don't think that would have worked very well. Um, plus, it's not how I like to live my life. What I did was call out his idea because I knew there was a better way and I had already sussed out a better way. I was doing something better for my clients. So I think you should have... There should be meat there, you know? I mean, the difference between the hype artists who last and the ones who are flashes in the pan are the ones who last and the ones who have sustaining careers actually have a product or service or set of ideas that have legs and have teeth. Whereas the other one, I mean, eventually the emperor, some some little kid does stand up and say, wait a minute, the emperor's naked. You know, that almost always happens <laughs> in the long run. Um, even if it's the attorney, even if it's, um, when you exhort your followers to storm the seat of your government, it might take a long time, but eventually you get found out, you know? And the good news is that never happened though. Oh no, wait. Oh yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> now you're confusing me. Canadians. <laughs> we don't get news up here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier around success begets success. And it's that idea that I think the most likely predictor of a successful career is being successful. And how does one kind of start that process off? How does one circumvent that success? Yeah, this is a really frustrating thing. I mean, it's, I mean, how many times have you heard a young person complain that people wanted them to have experience but how could they have experience if they didn't have experience, yes. you know? Exactly. But again, that that goes back to my central belief that, and the reason I wrote this book is you can complain about the way you wish things were, or you can find a way to live within those boundaries. I mean, I'm an employer and I'd like to tell you that I don't care about experience, but if I'm spending money out of my pocket, do I want some kid who doesn't know what they're talking about? Or do I want someone who's done it before? Right. So that's just the reality. And again, we use mental shortcuts. So if someone has success already, our brain wiring tells us they will again. So, you know, I mean, some of the things I talked about, like like with with Austin, with um Mark Echo, you have to create the perception of success on a small scale and then spin it into bigger and bigger success, right? Like, like, like Mark Echo used the term Macy's, the fact that Macy's is a big brand name, even though he had literally one rack on the floor that was there for two weeks to serve as the cornerstone for everything he did since. You know, I had a friend in my workspace who was looking for someone to write for ink. I said, I'll do it for free, you know, and, <laughs> um, but it's ink. It's the digital version of ink, which isn't the same as the print version, but no one knows the difference. And I didn't volunteer that, 
but I used Inc. to get writing gigs in Fortune and Forbes. I used Fortune and Forbes to get big clients. I used the big client logos to get bigger clients. So find that one seed and it's okay to leave things out. I mean, lying is one thing. Don't lie and always admit it. But but if you go, I mean, how many times do you hear people say something like this? It's just this like, again, lack of confidence in your delivery. Um oh, you wrote a column in ink? Yeah, it's ink, but it's the digital ink. And, and you know, it's, um, I do it for free, you know, and, and, you know, but yeah, it's cool. Right. <laughs> I mean, we've all, we all know those people, right? Like they, they, they shoot themselves down before they even, I write for ink. I wrote a column in ink. Would you like me to interview you for ink? Why don't people use these hype tactics more? One is lack of knowledge. I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're not obvious. They come in many different guises. I mean, the same tactics are used by cult leaders and captains of industry. Um, and I think the other thing is simply what we were sort of referring, you know, alluding to before. It's that there's a sort of distaste attached to it. There's this myth that, that stuff should rise on its own merits. You know, if, if your novel is good, if it's good enough, shouldn't it just be discovered. I mean, we hear these stories, right? It's, it's, what do they call it? I, I'm not going to get this right, but it's like the survivorship bias or something like that. Like JK Rowling was rejected by 27 people and the 28th picked her and she made billions of dollars. Okay. How many people got rejected by 27 people, then 28, then 29 and never got their novel sold or paid attention to? And how many people were picked by the 28th, got it published and it sold 14 books, you know? So we hear these Hollywood stories, these, these media stories, because there's more, they're more exciting. And we want to be like that. Like, like, I remember when I was playing in bands, I loved the clash. And I remember just like wanting to be like rebellious, like the clash. And then I started to dig in and the clash was like a boy band. Like they were put together by their manager. What? They weren't a boy band. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but like <laughs> Mick, Mick, Mick Jones was trying to put bands together for years. He, his manager worked for Malcolm McLaren at the Sex Pistols. Um, Mick Jones was a really good guitar player, but he saw that the punk movement happening. So he hacked his hair off to jump on the punk thing. Joe Strummer was in another band called the 101ers that already had a following. So they convinced him to join the band. Paul Simonon was good looking, really handsome. So they knew they needed someone handsome in the band. None of them were friends. You know, the drummer was a jazz drummer who would have made, who brought the band together. So this wasn't like, you know, we were living in a squat all as childhood friends and this and that. I mean, they were, it was a business venture. I want to take a bit of a tangential turn here because I've heard you say something that's so interesting and I want to touch on it briefly. You've said that you turn this common maxim on its head where you used to think that in business, you had to be direct. You know, you had to be strong and ask for what you wanted and sell, sell, sell. But your nature was of somebody that was very different. Your nature was of somebody that was thoughtful and more of a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to know, how has that kind of going deeper into what was once a perceived weakness, how has that been helpful for you or for your career? I guess I'm not sure that it would have, in other words, I am who I am. So if I was the direct, aggressive person, I would use that and it probably would get me great success, but I'm not that person. And when I try to be that person, I can't sustain it. So 
I used to say, you know, that just means I'm not going to be as successful and it would be depressing. And what I realized in, that was really liberating in studying hype was that most so every hype artist turns himself almost into a caricature version of themselves. They turn themselves into like a heroic version. They take their their nuanced traits and sort of smooth the rough edges out, right? So Richard Branson is this sort of swashbuckling um, Atlantic crossing hero. And Thomas Edison was the work 23 hours a day cantankerous inventor, you know, who invented electric light, which he actually did not. So you know, what I realized was the ones who do this best don't usually play up their strengths. They do sometimes, but what they do more is they find their weakness and they flip it into a strength. So, um, you know, Thomas Edison, the reason that he created the modern picture of the work around the clock, Elon Musk, invent a million things, aggressive sort of scientist is that he was partially deaf and he was really bad at dealing with people, but he knew he had to, had to promote himself. It was very challenging for him. So he created this image of the person who was too busy to interact with the public because he was holed up in his laboratory. Warhol was a very shy, pathologically shy person, which in the art world was not a very good thing because art thrives on networking. So what he did is he turned that into this character of mystique where he would give one word mysterious answers. So what I realized was, okay, I'm a people pleaser. Well, people like me. Well, that means that I'm really good at getting people to take me under their wing to help me out. So, you know, I hold dinners in the city, or at least I did before the pandemic, where I get all kinds of movers and shakers to come to my dinners. And I'm like the guy at the head of the table. And everyone knows me for that. Um, I have a thing that I do for clients called nuclear networking, where we turn personal networks into business leads. So I guess what I'm saying is we can wish we were a different way. We can try to become a mediocre version of someone else, or we can find that unusual thing about us that we may not be that comfortable with and flip that into the very thing that gets you attention. And I don't know, that was a very liberating thing. And when I started to embrace that, I started to have a lot more success. I think that even touches back on a point that you made earlier around feeling as a kid, like a nerd when you would read books. And then yeah. that actually transitioned into the greatest gift maybe of your life, right. finding height and, and and being an evangelist for these incredible marketing principles. Yeah, exactly. You've done so many of these interviews for the book. What is something that you wish that I had asked you around the book that I didn't? Gosh, I think you're doing a really good job. Maybe it's the people pleaser in me. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I don't okay, know. We got a couple I, of people pleasers here. Yeah, I'm I'm finding this a really good conversation because you know, even though the vast majority of the interviews I've done have been at least decent, and some of them have been spectacular. I do find myself falling back on a lot of the like stock answers that I've developed, not not in any conscious way, but just that the same questions come up and the same answers come up. I feel like I've been giving very different answers in this interview, which I think speaks to your strengths as an interviewer. So I don't want to make up something that you left out just to make it up. I think you're doing a great job and I'm really enjoying it. 
Well, thank you. And that's actually the only reason that I asked that question is for praise. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. No, believe me, I would tell you, I would tell you, even though I'm a people pleaser, it's funny. I've always been a people pleaser in my personal life and kind of an a-hole in my artistic and business life. Like I'm really, I'm the guy who like loves calling out hypocrisy in public. And even if it gets me in trouble, which I did with the Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, I, I have this whole series of articles that take down prominent gurus. And I wrote one called Tony Robbins is a jerk and what you can learn from him. I forget the exact title, but his PR people who are notoriously litigious reached out to Forbes to like <laughs> express their displeasure. And I had to go and prove that everything I said was factually accurate, but I should have been scared, but I was like really pleased with myself. You know, I was really happy. So how do you square that circle of both being a people pleaser in your personal life, but being a complete badass in your professional life? I don't know. I, I don't know. I've always been that way. I, I guess it's like I used to be an A student and I went to an Ivy League school. And I don't say that to brag. I say it because I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well. And I never and I knew how not to get detention and stuff like that. Like we had I went to um, a school where we had uniforms and you had to keep your shirt tucked in and most people didn't and they would get the merit points. And I never did. But at the same time, I was the person who would always raise their hand and debate the teacher and like win and like get like all the jocks to clap for me because I like got them caught in like a <laughs> loop, you know, I don't know. It's it's like, I, I mean, all of my heroes are scumbags. And and I, help me understand this. I'm not sure why I'm this way. <laughs> There's got to be some psychological thing underneath. But this is just this is me. I've just I've always, this is very interesting. I've never thought of it this way, but I've always had this dichotomy. Well, in the book, you talk a lot about mischief makers. And I wonder if you've always fit into that role in some way. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I, I, um, I like mischief. I like getting a rise. I like, I like getting people to question their assumptions. I, I like, for example, I, I, not only do I read like professional books, I like to read novels and, and, the novels I like, I don't like those novels where people are like sitting around talking about their feelings kind of thing. I like like almost novels that like, like I love books that get banned. I love books that, you know, are are, are offensive in some way or transgressive. I just like things that push. I just like like the punk rock aesthetic, I guess. And in some ways, looking back on your life, you know, even... I've heard stories in doing research on you, you know, your parents really wanted you to go to kind of the accounting finance background and you went down literally the complete opposite. My, and, my and father did. My father did. My, my mom, my mom is a good Jewish mom who like, if I wrote a short <laughs> story, she'd show it to everybody. She's always very proud of my <laughs> weird endeavors, but my, my father uh, most certainly did, wanted me to um, learn traditional business stuff and kind of go down that route, I would say. I want to wrap up just with one final thought, and, and that's around something that's holding you back from a higher level of success. I say success, but I really, I don't mean it in a financial way. I mean it in, you know, strong relationships and health and wealth and all of that kind of stuff. So what do you think is holding you back from even higher levels of success in any of those domains? Yeah, it's funny. This is one of those questions, like when they ask you in a job interview, what's your biggest weakness? And you know that whatever you say, you can't win because you're crazy gonna... organized. Yeah, exactly. Right. You're going to like show yourself as being like not good or you're going to show yourself as a BSer. Um, but I'm going to be honest. And and if that loses me, it's stuff. I'm I'm pretty distractible, you know, and, and, um, I, I um, 
I have a brother-in-law who's in finance. Um, he has an interesting career in finance. He's the director of research for um, Wisdom Tree, and he came in it into it through sort of an academic point of view. That being said, it's finance, and he, you can't like if he's watching TV, you can't distract him. He he's just like a machine, you know. I'm really distractible. I struggle with that. I always have. I work really hard, but um, I probably could work fewer hours. I mean, I, because even not even just distractible, like with new ideas, although that's part of it, but it, I block my internet because if the internet is is going, I will surf the internet. I, you know, I'm just, if someone calls me up an old friend, I have a hard time not taking the call. Um, and I constantly am coming up with all these systems and processes and programs, which work for three weeks. I tried time blocking recently, but that fell apart very quickly. So if anyone out there knows something to release me from this hellscape that is my life, please, uh, you know, let me know. Well, I wonder if you can take a page from literally your own book and turn that weakness into a strength. Yeah, that's a good point. I got to think about that. Yeah, it's very good. Michael, on that note, I just want to thank you so, so deeply for taking the time to chat with us today. This was a remarkable book and a remarkable interview. And so I'm just grateful that you took the time from somebody that, like yourself, just continuously strives for more. So for the listeners, if you want to learn more about Michael, you can find him personally on his website at Michael F. Shine. That's S-C-H-E-I-N.com. You can find his company, Microfame Media, on their website at microfamemedia.com. And you can buy a book, buy a copy of the Hype Handbook for yourself, of course, wherever you buy books. Michael, my friend, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I, the pleasure was all mine, Jared. I really enjoyed this. If you like this episode, you might also like episode number 31 with Srini Rao, the founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast and author of three books, including Audience of One. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.